Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. With all due respect, I reject your theory completely. But you know what? There needs to be some backlash to this. This would be disastrous. There really has to be a better way. And I think the biggest question here is, what the hell is going on? The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. Rue for present. Get in the race. Will he run? And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Let me give you an update on a story. It comes from Greenfield. Greenfield is, of course, the Mayberry of Milwaukee County. We have talked about Greenfield before. The big 4th of July con- uh, conflict, you will remember, the guy who has the four Civil War cannons and for 40-plus years with the blessing of the police chief, he would take the cannons to his daughter's home. She lived in Milwaukee, of all places, and they would, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they'd have a big 4th of July party, and they'd fire off the cannons. Boom, 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 boom. Then they'd reload, and they'd fire them again. Boom, 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 boom. So the whole thing lasts maybe 30 seconds, all right? And, and people from the neighborhood embraced it. It was kind of, it was just a lot of fun. Well, his daughter moves to Florida, so then he decides he's going to do it in, in Greenfield at his home. And, uh, again, you, you have the authorities who decide, oh, my God, you, you, can't, you can't do this. It's the 4th of July. We're, we're going to have noise. So he's done it the last couple years. The first year generated a handful of complaints. I'll talk about that in a minute. The second year, no complaints. Uh, this year, he has the party. And what happens is, honest to goodness, I'm not making this up. The police crash the party. They show up in anticipation of the party. This is Greenfield, where I guess there's not a lot to do. Um, and so they show up on the 4th of July, and they tell him in advance, we're, we're staying here. We're not going to allow you to do this. And, and ultimately, the guy backs down, and the police say, look, we're, we're sorry, we're here, but we're not going to permit you to do it. Now, hopefully there aren't cars being stolen or people being robbed anywhere else in Greenfield while they're committing time to show up at this guy's Fourth of July party. But the promise that the police give him is, we'll, we'll moving forward, we'll, we'll try to see if we can work something out so you can continue to shoot these things off. And he was at least temporarily satisfied. Now, I've got a couple questions. First of all, why didn't Greenfield, and when we've talked about this, and I think we did it two times in the last couple months, I would say 95% of our calls from Greenfield and from elsewhere were kind of like, oh, for goodness sakes. I mean, really, why don't you let this guy do this in, you know, give him a permit to do this particular activity? The idea that, oh, it's going to be disrupting people. Well, all right, when Otis drives his ice cream truck down the main street in Mayberry, it makes a little bit of noise. You know, why can't we work this all out? And so Greenfield, now they say that they're willing to take a look at this, although I'm kind of skeptical about that, um, especially given the mayor. And the guy who's been the mayor of Greenfield has been there just, just forever. The mayor quoted in stories talking about how, well, he's dubious about cannons being fired anywhere near homes. And he said, well... You know, the problem is, you know, the, the first year I, I got a I got a complaint about a baby that was trying to sleep and that a window rattled and that somebody was afraid that if the guy had cannons, he might have other guns as well. Somebody was afraid if he had cannons, he might have other guns as well. 
Somebody was afraid that if he had cannons, he might have other guns as well. Yes, yes, that that's, that is as stupid a concern as, as it sounds. But So the mayor of Greenfield, I'm not sure, is on board with this. Bottom line is, the Common Council, the mayor, and to an extent the police department. I'm sympathetic with the police department. They had to go over there because, uh, again, this was this big violation. I, I'm not sure how committed they are to working with this man to have some common sense to let him shoot off the cannons. Boom, 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 boom. But we will we will see. But in any event, if you're wondering what happened, yes, the police went out to the man's house and they shut him down before the cannons could be fired. So no window panes rattled, no baby woke up, at least until like the neighborhood dog started barking or something like that. Will the tradition resume next year? Who knows? All right. Bird scooters are going to be allowed in Milwaukee. That's the upshot of action by the Common Council and by the governor. I think this is going to ultimately fail. I will explain why. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't have a problem with these electric scooters. And I think everybody knows the way these things work. They there's there's various companies, and what they do is they dump the scooters onto various sidewalks into different areas in the city of Milwaukee. And then what happens is you've got an app, and you find out where a scooter is. You go to that scooter, and then you use a credit card to pay, and you get to you know ride the scooter for however long you want. You're just paying with the time that you take. All right. It's it's viewed as kind of a last mile destination. You know, you 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 know you're you want to I don't know go from the lakefront to Marquette, for example, and you don't feel like walking the the twelve or fifteen blocks, so you could theoretically take the scooter up there. I, I think it makes sense. I think it's fun. I can see that there's going to be some use for this, particularly for people at the lakefront during the summer who want to use these scooters to kind of go up to Bradford Beach and then maybe down to the Summerfest grounds. So I I think there's going to be at least a limited amount of demand for these. My problem is I just don't see a sustainable business model. I don't think that there's going to be that many people that are going to use them. That's number one. Number two, the people that do use them, tend to be extremely hard on them. As I was saying to um, Martin and, and Steve, you know, one of the things they're finding in other cities is they think these things like would have a lifespan of three month, two months or three months, and instead they're finding it's a couple weeks because you know people just, they, they're very, very hard on these things and they don't have the durability that people thought. So I think you couple that with some real liability concerns. And I'm not against them. I think it's kind of a novel concept. But my point is, not whether the city should allow them or not. I think that if they want to try it, that's fine. I just don't see this as sustainable. I don't think that there's, I don't think there's going to be enough use to ultimately allow these companies to make money. That's number one, especially in a place like Milwaukee where the summer season is short. And number two, I think that they're going to find that their expenses, the problems they have with these things, not to mention the fact that in not lots of cities, there's just outright vandalism on these things. You put this all together, I just don't see this as being a successful business. Is it worth trying? Yeah, I don't have a problem with that, 
but will it succeed? Let's start with Chris in Milwaukee. Chris, you're first. Hey, Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I've written these before, actually. Uh, I was in Indianapolis a couple of years ago, actually, last year, and we thought it would be a great idea to uh, get around the city, even in November. Okay. And it was very easy to use, very user-friendly, and you could download the app on their phone, but when we were driving into the city from Milwaukee, I've noticed that there were a ton of them in the river and yeah. places that they shouldn't be. And it just looked like they'd been dumped. You know, somebody looked like they had taken them apart or, you know, tried to and then dumped the remains in the river. And yep. It becomes an issue that no one's cleaning up the trash. Well, right. I mean, th- thanks for calling. I mean, I, I think that's, uh, again, you know, what's what's really to stop somebody at 1 o'clock in the morning if, you know, you've got three or four of these that are just laying on a sidewalk or laying up against a building somewhere, I mean, what's going, what's to stop somebody from, from stealing one or from, gra- or just, just pure out, you know, vandalism? I understand you can't activate it unless you have the app and you do that. But these things are just, I mean, the bike, the bikes at least, I mean, they're, they're locked up and they're all together. These are going to be scattered throughout the city. And again, people are hard on them. That's one of the other things that they're finding. It's like, well, okay, you treat your own car differently than you treat a rental car. You treat the stuff in your living room differently than you might treat the stuff in a motel room that you're only staying one night. And, yeah, if this was your own electric scooter, yeah, you take care of it. And, again, I, I think I think it's going to be a fun thing to try. And my guess is there's going to be a certain novelty that attaches to it. And during, like I say, you know, during July, could I see people, not me, but could I see certain people deciding, hey, you know, we're going down to Summerfest. That this might be cool. Before we go in, let's find one of these things and let's ride up to Bradford Beach along the lake, and then let's ride back and then let's drop it off and let's go into Summerfest. Can I see something? Do I see a cool factor for that, or maybe something fun? Yeah, I I, I do, but I don't know that that's a sustainable sort of model. So. Do I fault the city for trying it? No, absolutely not. I mean, let the city try it. Maybe it's going to work out, but I seriously doubt it. My guess is this is going to turn out to be the flavor of the month. And candidly, a year from now, two years from now, this is going to be, at least in this present business model, dropping these things on the street, this is going to be something that it's just it's not sustainable. It's not going to work. I don't think it's going to succeed. Not hoping against it, I am just very, very doubtful. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right. You know, every once in a while, I I understand that we're supposed to be in this world politically neutral and in, in so many different walks of life, you're not supposed to have opinions. But every once in a while, you, you want to sit there and you want to say, look, there, there are historical facts that you cannot ignore. For example, you know, we had slavery in this country. It's nothing that anybody is proud of, but you've got a flag of the 13 colonies. And yes, they had slavery during that time. Does that mean that we, we can't? We can't display that flag of the 13 colonies or we need to remove it from museums or do we we cannot put that flag out on on tennis shoes because some people might make this association. And again, it's when we get obsessed with political correctness, 
I, I think, you know, we end up losing a huge part of our history, which brings me to this story. It actually comes from Boca Raton, Florida. And there's a guy who is the principal at this school. It's a high school in Boca Raton, Florida. And apparently, as part of the study class, they were studying the Holocaust. You know, again, a very, very dark time in the history of civilization. So they're studying the, the Holocaust. And what happens is he, this principal um, engages in a dialogue with a parent who's got some questions about how they are going to be teaching this particular thing. And apparently in an email exchange with a parent, the principal says the school offered an assembly and courses on the Holocaust, but they were optional and could not be forced upon all students. Okay, They're optional and cannot be forced upon all students because why? Heaven forbid that we should, I don't know, teach students about what happened in World War II and what was done to an entire race of people? I mean, what, 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 what's this about this idea that it can't be forced upon people? And then he goes on and he says, I can't say the Holocaust is a factual historical event because I am not in position to do so as a school district employee. I can't say the Holocaust is a factual historical event because I am not in a position to do so as a school district employee. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> okay, so does that mean because you're a school district employee, you can't say that we had a revolutionary war, or you can't say that there was a civil war, or you can't say that, you know, um, 50 years ago we, we landed a man on the moon? What, what do you mean? It, it, you can't say it's a factual historical event because you are a school employee. I mean, there there are facts and then there are opinions. The Holocaust is a fact. Then he says, I do allow information about the Holocaust to be presented. Oh, that's nice. And I allow students and parents to make decisions about it accordingly. I do the same with information about slavery. I don't know what that means either. I mean, it, it's okay. Are, are, we're not going to teach that there was slavery in this country because you're, you're a school employee. I mean, all right, yes, there was slavery. Very dark time. One of the ways that you learn from history is you educate people and you teach people about it. Yeah. You, it, I mean, I don't understand how you can run a history course, an American history course, that focuses on that period of time, the 1700s and the 1800s leading up to the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation. How can you teach that unless you're teaching slavery? How in the world can you teach World War II without teaching the Holocaust? And to say that the Holocaust was not a factual historical or event, or you can't take a position as to what it was, just makes you sound ignorant and completely and totally out of touch. Well, this has created a huge firestorm and an intense backlash in South Florida where this occurred. I, I think it should have an intense backlash regardless because you don't need to be Jewish to appreciate the horrors of the Holocaust. Maybe you have some special insight into that, but I mean, I think all of us 
regardless of what our religious belief is, should be absolutely appalled that you had, in this case, Nazi Germany trying to exterminate a, a particular race of people. I mean, I, and again, you, you don't have to be Jewish to appreciate the horror of it, although I'm, I'm sure it adds something extra to it. But of course, this guy is saying this stuff in South Florida where you have a significant Jewish population and you have the highest concentration of surviving Holocaust survivors in the world. So ultimately, they, they started off by saying, well, we're going to give him a couple classes to you know, educate this guy on this. And then ultimately they decided, well, he's probably gone too far and they fired him because he can't say, he can't say as a school district employee, whether the Holocaust is a factual historical event. And he adds, not everybody believes the Holocaust happened. Well, not everybody believes that we landed a man on the moon. All right? Not everybody believes that. Not everybody believes the Earth is round. There are still some people in caves somewhere who think that the Earth is flat, and if you sail far enough away you're going to fall off the edge not too many but they are pot they're out there i i know that they're out there just because you have crackpots out there who have certain beliefs if you're an educator doesn't mean you teach the facts not everyone believes the holocaust happened so we're not going to so i can't say it and we're not going to mandate it this guy does not belong in a classroom he does not belong supervising children and the Florida school board finally got around to concluding it. Huh. I can't say the Holocaust is a factual historical event. Give me a break. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We're back. Yeah, I was just looking at the 1996 numbers. Ross Perot ran again, but 1992 was really his year. 96 was the year Bill Clinton was running for re-election. Uh, Bob Dole was running against him, and Ross Perot was running as the candidate of the Reform Party. He got about half as many votes as he got in 1992. He got about 8 million, 8.4% of the vote. Um, and, and I don't, unlike 92, where I feel comfortable saying that the presence of Perot on the ballot cost George Bush his re-election, I, I don't think Perot was that much of a factor. Bob Dole was going to lose that race, regardless of whether Ross Perot was in it or not. But certainly Ross Perot, interesting character, and again, the the precursor, I I think without Ross Perot, I don't think you have a a Tea Party movement, and without Ross Perot, I, I, I don't know that you have a guy like Donald Trump, because Ross Perot started writing writing that book back in the early 1990s, and certainly an interesting historical figure and a successful guy who passed away. All right. Bud Selig, former commissioner of baseball, has a new book. I think it's out today. And he talks about, in the book, his his time growing up in Milwaukee and his time with the Brewers and his time as the commissioner of baseball. And uh, there's been a number of excerpts, and it sounds like a pretty interesting book. Now, by way of disclosure, I, I don't. I wouldn't say that I – that, that Bud Selig is a close friend of mine, but we, we know each other and, you know, we've seen each other socially on occasions. And I, I like Bud Selig personally quite a bit. And I certainly appreciate the contributions that he's made to baseball in Milwaukee. Cause the truth is, if there's not a Bud Selig, there's not, there, there's not, there's not a Milwaukee Brewers now. That, that's just the reality. I also 
don't think that anybody can question the the love that Bud Selig has for the game. I mean, and he he's very he's controversial. People remember the the 2002 All Star Game in Milwaukee where they ran out of players and he declared it a tie, and people you know blame him for for that. But actually. That was the impetus for a lot of changes to make the All-Star Game, which, by the way, is tonight, I, I think, a, a better event. Um, people look at the steroid era of baseball, and they they lay blame at, at the feet of Bud Selig, to which he says, look, I knew we had a problem, but the deal was, you know, I had a very strong players' union, and the players' union didn't want drug testing, period. And so we, we weren't able to move as quickly as we possibly could. Some people think that's a cop-out. I actually think that there's a bit of merit to it. So, I mean, Bud Seeley is an interesting guy, and I think everybody in Milwaukee owes him a debt of gratitude. There is a portion in this book where talking about the battle over Miller Park, and I understand if you if you weren't here in the mid-1990s, you, you perhaps you, you don't understand or remember what a fight that was. Back at that time, County Stadium was antiquated. I mean, County Stadium, I, I remember I remember being underneath County Stadium a couple times. I was working here at the time, and I, I just, it was falling down. I mean, they're lucky they didn't have an OSHA inspection because OSHA would have probably closed it down. It had reached the end of its useful life. And the truth of the matter was, you know, baseball, I, I don't think it would have been sustainable in Milwaukee without a new stadium. So Bud Selig... Um, set about the process of, of trying to get you know a new stadium in in Milwaukee, and it went through a lot of kind of discussions. At first, the idea was the Brewers going to pay for it, we're going to pay for it, but the Brewers didn't have enough money to pay for the stadium, so we ended up having to have this publicly financed Miller Park. And there were a lot of politicians that spent a lot of capital trying to get this because it was extremely controversial. And the argument was always. Well, you know, same as pretty much when we had with the Bucks Arena um, just a couple years ago, but more so because this was going to be funded pretty much exclusively by the taxpayers. The argument was, hey, you've got millionaire and billionaire owners and you've got millionaire players. Why are the taxpayers paying to, to build this? In any event, it got done. And it, it's a success story. In In his book, Bud goes off on Tommy Thompson and John Norquist. Tommy Thompson was the governor at the time. And, and Tommy... Tommy was pushing for Miller Park. Now, sometimes not in the best ways. For example, he was at a Harley rally, and this is just legendary Tommy. He's at a Harley rally up north, and the the, the funding mechanism was going to be a five-county st- sales tax. And he's telling people up north, go ahead, you know, your, your, tell your legislators to vote for it. Stick it to Milwaukee, which wasn't necessarily the best. It might have been true. But it wasn't necessarily the best thing to say. But but Tommy was a cheerleader. John Norquist, I, I think, kind of less so. Norquist, I don't know, remember him really being a factor one way or the other in debate. But in his book, Bud Selig talks about how how difficult. He said, I, I witnessed some of the worst, most Machiavellian behavior you can imagine. That's not good, by the way. I had politicians, including our governor at the time, Thompson, and our mayor, John Norquist, routinely say one thing to my face. And do the opposite behind my back. But but he doesn't give details. So he, he kind of, this is what's in the book. So um, as 
no surprise. People go out, and Business Journal, for example, tracks down Tommy Thompson, and Tommy says, he paid, this would be Bud, he paid for nothing as far as I'm concerned. He never said thank you to the taxpayers. I was in on Miller Park from the beginning, stayed up all night helping getting it passed in the legislature, and then signed it into law. He should be down on his knees thanking the taxpayers, the legislators, and my administration for Miller Park. Um, you know, Norquist says pretty much the the same sort of of thing because Norquist was trying to get the stadium downtown and, and that wasn't ever going to happen. But so now you have years and years after the fact where Miller Park, it, it's on on the verge of being paid off. Now you have the guy who was the governor at the time and you have probably the leading proponent at the time. Now they're kind of in a you know whating match over what happened back then and who was Machiavellian and who lied and who did this. And I, I just I'm taking this all in and again I, I have the pleasure of knowing Governor Thompson Thompson and I certainly know Commissioner Selig and I'm thinking, okay, why why are we picking this fight at this point in time? Which leads to what I would like to discuss with you. Our number is four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Regardless of who lied to who and who was Machiavellian and who promised what, I believe that Miller Park is one of the great success stories in this area. I look back on this. I'm glad I supported it. I'm glad the legislators voted for it because, candidly, without Miller Park, I don't believe that the Brewers would still be here. That That's just the county stadium. Somebody would have come along and they would have scooped up the Brewers. Now, maybe we couldn't have foreseen that ultimately the Seelings would sell to the Mark Atanasio group and they put a bunch of money in the team and the team would have the success like it had last year. Okay, maybe we couldn't anticipate that. But the truth of the matter is, I think Miller Park has just been a winner all around. And I speak to that perspective. Yes, I am a baseball fan and I love having games to go to. At the same time, I think it's been good for the community. And so while I'm disappointed to see the former governor and the former commissioner now in this kind of public fight about this, the bigger point to me is I'm thankful that we have Miller Park. And I am thankful to the taxpayers, including myself, who you know supported it and who paid that five-county sales tax. Because I think the community is a much better place because of it. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I have a text before we go to the phones from Mitch. He says, what do you suppose was motivating Seelig to make a big issue of this now? It doesn't seem helpful. I don't know. And I think that's a very good point. I mean, if okay, if you're writing your memoirs and you've got axes to grind or you want to settle scores, that that's fine. Um, but the way he did it was peculiar to me because this I read you. The whole attack on Norquist and on Tommy Thompson. It, it, I guess if I was helping the commissioner write the book and I saw that, I would say, just so you know, commissioner, this is going to this is going to stir up a huge hornet's nest. And if you want to do this, okay, let's devote some pages to it. Explain what you mean when you thought that they were Machiavellian or they were double dealing or whatever. Let, let's let's devote a chapter to it. Let's devote several pages to it. Let's let's not do it in a drive by fashion if you feel it's necessary to include it. So I I agree. I, it, why you would do it in this form doesn't matter. But the bottom line is, see, I don't want to detract from the story. Regardless of how this got done, I'm glad Miller Park did get done. Armando in Green Bay. Armando, you're on WTMJ. Hi. 
Uh, yeah, I remember staying up really late because I was a lot younger, mm-hmm. and I was listening in bed, and I was like, how could you let the Brewers go? Yep. How could you let them go? And when they got it done, I was like, thank you, P-Tac. Yeah, George P-Tac. And he lost his election because of that. Right, right. Yeah, for people who might not be familiar, George Petak, great guy, state senator from Racine. Racine is, of course, included in the five-county tax. He had originally come out against it, but he switched his vote in order to make sure the motion carried. And as a result, you know, he got voted out in a recall, which was just an absolute tragedy. But, but I, I mean, I just don't think how you, I just don't see how you can look back 20 plus years later and not say, my God, I'm glad However they did it, they got together and built Miller Park because it's just, I don't think you can argue that it's been a great thing for this area. The other thing I'd say, too, is like now people know they can go down there. Being up here, you have a lot of butts yeah. down there. People know we're going to have a game. Oh, yeah. I mean, I no, thanks to as somebody As somebody who can remember going to you know games at County Stadium in April and September, I, I every day I think, man, this is great, and and the timing was just perfect to to afford to put a dome on it. Ten years later, it would have probably been cost prohibitive, which is why stadiums in Minnesota don't. The new stadium in Minnesota doesn't have a dome. The stadium in Detroit doesn't have a dome. But you know that it doesn't matter if it's raining or it's cold or whatever. There there's going to be a ball game being played at Miller Park. Bill in Amro. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Uh, hi. hi uh, thanks for taking my sure. call. Um, yeah, I actually live in Racine, and I remember that night when it was 2 or 3 in the morning, and, and uh, the last vote was given, and I was so proud that it was uh, from Racine. Uh-huh. I felt so bad for him when he was about the next election yep. with the recall. But uh, I also was, I'm old enough to remember Hank Aaron and, and Billy Brook and the old uh, Brewers. And uh, if you remember the stadium, August 8th of one of those years, it rained so hard that it was filled up to the third row of seats. Yeah. You know, literally, you had no drainage. Yeah. There's no way in the world that people could stay there. Yeah. And I take people from out of state that come in, uh, and in the wintertime, there's really not much to see except for, you know, I think it's a TGI product. Right. You know, and it's a great place to take them. They get to see the field. They get to see how great it is. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's just... There's no, it, nothing bad about it. It is. No, thank, and I, I think, I mean, I think it has been an economic engine for southeastern Wisconsin. And I guess I, I think it's been good for the entire state. Now, the, if you don't remember what the huge debate was about, you weren't living here at the time or whatever. I mean, there were a lot of, first of all, Outside of Milwaukee, there were a lot of Democrats who were against it because the the Republicans were pushing it. So it was political to that sense. But then there were you know a lot of legislators who were under pressure because their constituents, people in La Crosse, would say, "Well, you know why why are we going to fund it?" To which you know you'd have the response, "Well, you know it's going to be paid for largely out of this five county sales tax. So why do you really care about that?" But I can't tell you how heated that debate was. I, I won't say that's the most heated debate that I've been involved in over all the years I've been on the radio, but it's definitely in the top two or three. Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, I think, well, first of all, I think obviously that it was worth the fight, but with one caveat is the fact that if they don't honor the sunset date on the yeah. sales tax, um, forget 
forget anything going forward because nobody's going to trust. Yeah, I, I think that's going to happen. Don't you really? I don't. I don't think that. I know some people have talked about like figuring out new legislation to continue it. I just don't see that as a starter in the in the legislature. I, I hope not. But yeah. I'm just saying. But you know how that usually goes. I mean, it, it, yep. you know, once a tax you know sticks to the wall, then it just stays there. Yep. You know, I mean that type of thing. And and if they do that, um, you know, with the cost of of new venues and things like that you know we're not talking one or two years down the line we're talking right. about 10 15 20 years down the line but you know yeah no you know you're no thanks dave you're, you're right i mean that's that that is one of the things and you know you make a great point you think of so many things where like think about the phone company there used to be a surcharge on your phone bills that were designed to it was an extra payment to use the money to install phones in rural areas Okay, well, well, all right, that, that's not what we do with that surcharge anymore. But they figured, okay, people aren't paying attention. They're used to having the surcharge. Let's now say we're not going to do it for its intended purpose. We're going to use it to expand cell phone service or, or whatever. You, you switch. And, and that, of course, does happen on a lot of different occasions. I don't think that's likely to happen at Miller Park. And again, regardless of the ongoing, you know, wedding match now that's broken out between the former mayor, the former governor, and the former commissioner. We don't want to detract from the big story, which is Miller Park. I'm sorry, it's pretty darn cool, and I, you know, that's that was the reaction I had the first time I walked in, and it's the reaction I have pretty much every time I walk in. And I'm glad we built it. Like I say, I I'm glad I supported it back then, and I think pretty much everybody who did feels that same way. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. The love bug is dead, and I, for one, am sorry to see it go. The Beetle, the VW Beetle, which it, it, it's actually its origins go back to Nazi Germany in 1938. But the, the VW Beetle, which has been produced off and on since 1938, tomorrow, the last one rolls off the production facility in Mexico, and that's it. VW announced last year that they were killing production of the VW Beetle, and true to form, tomorrow is it. After tomorrow, they are not going to be making the Beetle anymore. And it's it's kind of difficult for me to to do that because I owned a Beetle. I'll tell you about that in just a couple minutes. But Beetles were iconic. If you think back to the '60s, for those of you who were children of the '60s, I mean that was the thing. The whole everybody, all the hippies, you know, drove VW Beetles or the VW buses. You know, that was kind of the, the statement of the counter counterculture. You might remember the uh, movie, the Disney movie, um, Herbie the Love Bug. All right, that that was a hugely successful movie. And interestingly, the year that that movie debuted, 1968, that was the year that sales of VW Bugs um, peaked in the U.S., about 423,000 units. And it's been pretty much... You know, downhill since then, they discontinued the production, and then um, in the 1990s, they brought it back, and then they redesigned it like around 2011, and now they've announced that uh, it's done. They, they are, they're getting rid of this to concentrate on electric cars and on some of the other vehicles. I owned a Beetle, and it's kind of a, my story is, my late wife 
Um, she was not a car girl particularly. She just drove cars to death, and she had a car for about 10 years, and we really needed to get a new car because the one she had was breaking down. And I, I took her out to look at all sorts of vehicles, and she didn't see any that she liked. I didn't like this, didn't like that, didn't want a sedan, etc. And she saw, this would have been 2014, she saw this red VW Beetle convertible, and she said, I want it. That's the one I want. Now, I talked her out of getting the convertible because I didn't think it was practical, but that's what she wanted. So we went out, we ordered one that was made in Mexico, as a matter of fact. They delivered it in March of 2015, this red beetle. And I will tell you something, Gru is producing the show today and always. Actually, I'm 6'1". I I fit better in that car than I did in, in some other type of sedans, just because the way it was designed, it had a ton of headroom. I will also say... This thing had a lot of pickup because VW used the same turbocharged engines for all their cars. So the same one that's in a sport utility vehicle is in this Beetle. And I'm telling you, you tap the gas, and this thing just takes off. And it cornered like it was on rails. It was a really, really fun car to drive. In my particular case, what happened is my my wife got sick a couple months after we took delivery, and she really never drove it very much. And ultimately... I ended up selling, I think I sold it about a year and a half ago, just because I, I just, I didn't have room to, I was moving, didn't have room to, you know, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't need that extra car, etc. But I, I miss it. It was a fun car to drive. And I will tell you, I am a little bit surprised that the sales weren't better on the VW Beetle than, than they were. Last year, 2018, yeah, last year, in the U.S., they sold about 14,000 Beetles. 2017, about 15,000. 2016, about 15,000. Uh, so, I mean, it, it had kind of, it had kind of plateaued out. People weren't, weren't buying these cars. But to tell you the truth, I'm not sure I really understand why that was. I thought it was a well-made car. It was fun to drive. It got great gas mileage. It had a lot of pickup. Now, admittedly, it, it's not an SUV. And it's not a particularly, you know, low-cost thing. I mean, it, it costs a bunch of money. You're talking about to get it tricked out with everything. You were probably talking twenty-five to thirty grand, I would guess, off kind of off the top of my head. But it was still a fun car to drive, and yet not that many of us wanted it. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I want to talk about the demise of the Beetle. For w- what happened here? You know why? Why did Americans just decide that they weren't going to buy this car? I mean, it's been around forever. Like I say, it's iconic. But, you know, the number of purchasers, I'm looking at the year-to-year sales, you know, dropped dramatically year after year after year. They just weren't selling enough to continue to make it worthwhile. As somebody who, who did periodically drive one of those Beetles, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun, and I thought it was a lot more fun to drive quite candidly than a lot of the other you know, more ubiquitous sedans and things that are out there. So 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What happened to the Beetle? Why did it fall out of favor? And if you if you owned a Beetle, maybe not right now, but if you owned a Beetle at some point in time in your life, did, didn't you just absolutely love the car? 414-799-1620, we discuss in a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
If you're just tuning in, tomorrow, the last VW Beetle rolls off the production line in Mexico, which is where they make them now. They don't make them anywhere else. The Beetle line, at least for the foreseeable future, is dead. And they've been producing off and on Beetles since 1938. What, what happened? Russell in Brookfield. Russell, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, I've had a couple of uh, Volkswagens. In fact, the second car I ever bought in 1967 when I was in the Army station outside of Seattle, I bought a 61 and drove that thing all up and down the <laughs> West Coast, down to California, up to Canada. When I got out of the Army, I drove it back home, gave it to my fiance. She drove it for years. And uh, later on, I bought a Super Beetle, which was a kind of an extension of the conventional Beetle. had a little bit right. more room, blah, blah, blah. And that was a nice car, too, but... That their time has passed. I mean, millennials don't want one. That's a car out of the history. They want something new and modern, and they're the ones buying the bulk of the cars. And it just is. It just is a style that just time has passed. You know? Huh? You know, and I see. I would say that in some respects, I, I, you would think that that ti- that style would be timeless. But obviously, you're right. I'm wrong. You know, that people just right. Yeah, you know, look it, at it. It just it just ran out of steam. You know, I I was going to buy a Super Beetle a while back, a convertible, and I took it to my gas station, and they put it up on a rack, and the bottom of it was all rusted out. Uh, it was yeah. just a cancer case. You know, I said, take her down. <laughs> not, you're not going to have Well, I, 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 I it was just a challenge. It was not, not was worth it. Right. Well, no, thanks to God. I mean, I, I will, I, like I say, and, and maybe, maybe it's kind of a marketing thing, because it... Look, I, honestly, I, I think most of the people that bought them were women, and that, that's where they kind of marketed the cars to. I mean, my late wife saw it just fell in love with it. Uh, but and, and I understand there's a trend now. Everybody wants sport utility vehicles, and the VW Beetle is the exact opposite of that. But it was, in all honesty, the one we had, it was a fun car to drive. It handled well. It had front-wheel drive. It, it was great in the winter. Um, it's... It really moved. I mean, like I say, it was one of those things where, I mean, I'm driving my SUV, and I know what it takes to get it up to 70 miles an hour. That Beetle, all of a sudden, I'd be on the freeway, i touch it, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, I'm going 85, and then you'd have to back off. It was, it was just a fun car to drive, but obviously not enough people decided to do it. Danny in West Dallas. Hi, Danny. Hey, how you doing, Jeff? Real well, thank you. What happened to the Beetle? You know, everybody wants everything bigger and better now. Uh, so I think plain and simple, it got followed up by that. Um, I used to have, well, my parents used to have a Beetle about 25 years ago. I was looking through a car catalog, you know, one of those great colored ones where you can see all the exotic cars. Right. And we got a chance to buy a 68 Beetle that was used in Herbie the Love Bug. Really? Yeah, it was an actual real movie car. And my dad surprised me by buying it. And so I got to drive the thing, you know, half a dozen times and just had a blast. You know, took it everywhere I possibly could when he let me. And, you know, still have the car. And I don't get to drive it, of course, anymore, but uh, we still have it. But, uh, yeah, it, I, when I heard you mention it on the yeah. on your show, I just, I thought, oh, that's too bad. Because every time I see one, I think of the... Yeah. The one my dad bought. Well, no, it is. No, thanks for calling. No, and, and, and like I say, it's a fun car to drive. Okay, Jeff, I always wanted one since I was 16, but never owned one. I now need a new car, and my husband told me I should get the bug convertible that I always dreamed of. Um, I want to, but I'm afraid that the parts are needed. How long will they carry them? I, I wouldn't be concerned about that. I mean, there, there's all sorts of cars that have gone out of production, and they still have the parts for them. And how they handle in the snow, do you know? I can just tell you my experience the the one we had the 2015 it handled extremely well in the snow matter of fact it it handled better in the snow 
because I think of weight distribution and all. It handled better in the snow than a lot of other cars did. So I wouldn't let that be a. Uh, I wouldn't let that hold out. This year, apparently, the the one the the final edition that they're rolling out with. Um, is they call it the final edition Beetle. They are producing. You've got coo- a coupe or a convertible, um, and uh, but I think only in two colors. Ours is in red, the, beige or light blue. Apparently, those are the two colors that they're coming out with. But I mean, I'm sure there's used cars that are out there as well. It was just a fun car to drive. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Lisa in Elkhart Lake. Lisa, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi there. Hi. Um, we had a red. Uh, CW Beetle convertible with tan interior, uh-huh. bought it used as an extra car for when kids were in high school and college. Our daughter ended up taking it to school in Indiana and drove it back and forth for three years. And it was amazing how much, how many, how many things and people and memories it was. Yeah, it was did, a great did, car. Did you have the little flower pot on the on the front dashboard with the flower in it and all? Of course, of course. Yeah. And we had and we had flower. Um, insert things on our back light right it came, that, it came that way we didn't right we didn't, you know but it was it was a fun car and um you were saying like with headroom i mean it was kind of amazing how tall of a person you could put in I, there without any problem and, I, well i was i was stunned because that was one of my hesitations when we were looking at it i'm thinking okay well i'm i'm six one i'm not gonna obviously i knew i was gonna be driving the car at some point in time and i wasn't gonna get something that i couldn't comfortably drive but just the way they had it shaped i i I think I had more headroom than in, in traditional sedans and stuff. It, that was no yeah. problem at all. Yeah, no, and we had it up until uh, two years ago. We traded in that and a Jeep and got a different car. So, so what um, happened? Why why did the the bottom fall out? I mean, they only sold fourteen or fifteen thousand of them in the U.S. every year for the last several years. I mean, did it just fall out of style, or what do you think happened? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the the safety ratings were on it. We never had any. Oh, I think they were pretty good. I think it was, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think, like you said, kind of the the SUV mentality, yeah. um, and and if if more women are driving them than men, there's, I guess, yeah, there's. I don't know. I drove a, I drove a Jeep at one point in time too. So Got it. yeah, okay. Um, well, thank no, yeah, thanks. But, I mean, it's and and again, it's. I, I think. I mean, right now people want big, and with gas prices at where they are, people can afford you know big, and so. Although I, I'm reading stuff that says that the SUVs that they're they're kind of overproducing those now, and the, the VW it was not cheap. I mean it it was like I say. I mean for you look at a small car now. I think it was incredibly well built. Like I say, it had a really great motor. I mean it a really great engine and stuff. But I mean it was it was pricey. I mean to get it tricked out again twenty five to thirty grand. That's kind of what you're looking at. I don't know what the very bare bones model would have been, but you know it, it. So it's not cheap, and I think maybe some people looked at it and said, "Well, gee, you know, you want me to pay twenty eight thousand dollars for this, and I can get something that's bigger for less money." But I, I'm really I'm sorry to see it go. Diane in Milwaukee. Diane, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Diane. Jeff, I love your show. Thank you. Um, you know, the bug, the beetle was my very first car, <laughs> and oh, I mean. It, I brought him straight off the showroom floor him. in 1971, never negotiated. That's how dumb I was. <laughs> and uh, he was dark green. He had a little luggage rack on top, and uh, his name was Harold. Harold. I was, oh, <laughs> yes, and I was madly in love with Harold for many, many years. And yeah. a lo- so finally, you know, I, I got horses, and I bought a... 
I'm sorry to say blazer. <laughs> so I got rid of Harold. Yeah. And, but the point of the story is, you know what I paid for Harold brand new in 1971? What was that? $1,500. Yeah. Now you're looking at probably thirty grand for Harold fully tricked out and ready to go to the prom. Yeah. <laughs> you're talking so, thirty grand probably. Yep. You know, to me, that's what happened because Harold is as charming as ever, you know, and everybody right. falls in love with him. Right. So I switched over to the Mazda Miatas and uh-huh. I've had one ever since. And at least they're, you know, they're getting pricey too. But they last forever, and they're charming. Yeah, it so. was. Yeah, thanks for calling me, Diane. It, it, it is kind of a, a niche, and and like I, said, I remember when we negotiated and bought the bought our car, it was I, I was asking the guy, okay, who who buys this? You know, who who is the target? And you know, and, and he, I might my guess is it would probably be ninety percent women. He he didn't want to say that, but I might guess it was probably nine out of ten people women. And and the other fact is, I mean, it's. It's a limited use sort of car. I mean, it's still it's a small car, and could you put two people in the back seat? You could. Could they be comfortable? I don't know. Could you put two sets of golf clubs in the car only if you knock down the back seat? So I mean, it's it's a it in many respects it's not practical. It's it's fun if you're. It was fun for me to drive as a grown up. It would be, I think, fun for, you know, a, a gal to, you know, drive around town in and you could go to the grocery store as long as you didn't have too many bags of groceries. But the the reality is it was kind of a niche because of how small it was and it was expensive. And I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, millennials who looked at this and said, oh, that that's my grandmother's car. She talks about the 60s. I'm, I'm not buying. I'm not buying that. And I, I understand and times change and things change. And I get all that. I'm just saying that uh, I I have a little bit of a tear in my eye because it was I, I just that was such a part of automotive history for so many of us. You know, growing up, we all saw the the VW Beetles, and as somebody who owned one, it it was it was a lot of fun to drive. But times change, tastes change. In any event, the last production model, the last car rolls off the line tomorrow for the VW Beetle. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. I think in this one area, they should have to tell you how much it is going to cost. I am talking about prescription drugs. Now, generally speaking, in advertisements, sometimes the advertisers tell you how much a product costs. Most times they they probably don't in 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 their ads. You know they'll say, hey, you know, buy buy Jeff's widgets. You know, come on down to Jeff's widget store, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they're trying to tell you how great Jeff's widgets are, but they they don't tell you exactly how much it costs. All right, that most advertisers don't. Figuring, all right, they'll get you in the store and you'll be able to see how much these things cost. So that's the way advertising generally works. When it comes to medical services. Whether it's doctors or hospital stays or or prescription drugs, one of the big factors driving cost is what what I would describe as lack of transparency. You sign up for a colonoscopy. You're going to get the colonoscopy, but but you don't negotiate price as a general rule. And I bring this example up because I'm having one in August. So that's that's I will. I will share, if I can go through this, anybody can. So we're we're gonna we're gonna have a discussion about that. I'm doing this to try to 
make sure that I'm healthy. I think I am, but also to inspire other people to do it. But when, okay, so the doctor says, okay, Jeff, you're due for the colonoscopy. I call, he, he gives me a referral. I call up the place, make sure it's covered by insurance, and then sign up. But I, I'm not actively, okay, well, how much is this going to cost? I'm not shopping around to see who's going to do the colonoscopy. I don't know how much it's going to cost. I have a rough, but I have a rough idea of what, you know, my deductible is going to be and something like that. But, but anyway, I'm not competitively shopping for this. Well, you know, they, they don't have to advertise. They don't, they, they would tell you if you ask, but most people don't end up asking. Well, if you've listened to radio, and obviously you have if you're listening to me or you watch TV, one of the things you see nowadays is, depending on what show you're watching, I don't think you can go an hour without seeing somebody running an advertisement for some drug. And have diabetes? Okay, this is this is the new thing for, for diabetes, too. Um, you know, do you have, you know, this particular problem? Do you have that particular problem? Well, ask your doctor about this, this drug or whatever. And the idea is to encourage you know people to go and talk to their doctors about the drugs. Now, at the end of the ad, most of the times they have all these disclaimers where whoever's doing it reads really, really fast and tells you all about the different things, including this fact. You know, if you take this, in certain cases, it could make you you know grow a third ear or something like that. And they give that disclaimer in really, really quick language. But the ads don't tell you how much the stuff costs. What President Trump did in an executive order is he said that if these drug companies are going to – he directed the Department of Health and Human Services to issue a rule. The rule says that drug companies, if they're going to advertise a drug and the drug costs – the list price of the drug costs more than $35 a month, they have to include the list price in the ad. So if they're telling you, hey, this is the greatest thing since canned beer, et cetera, et cetera, but it turns out the drug costs three or $4,000, they have to put that in there. That's what the rule said. The drug companies didn't want to have to do that. And the drug companies argued, well, first of all, you know, it's a, you, you shouldn't be able to control what we say in our ads. You shouldn't be able to force us to put stuff in. Secondly, they said, that, okay, people don't pay list price. You know, the price that folks are going to get charged for the drug is going to be dependent on a variety of factors, including, you know, what their insurance coverage is, whether it's in network, all these different things. So the drug companies sued. And yesterday, a federal judge, for whatever it's worth, appointed by Obama, struck down this rule, said, nope, the administration went too far didn't have the authority to order the drug companies to do it. Now, interestingly, what the judge said was, hey, th- this might make a lot of sense. Judge said, I'm not making a decision as to whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. Should drug companies have to disclose in their advertising how much a product costs? Judge just said, I don't think under the law the administration has the authority to make this rule. This is something that Congress has to do. And I, that may that may very well be right. I mean, I, I I'm one of these guys during the Obama years who just objected to the use of executive power with all these different orders. The judge yesterday might have been right in saying the administration didn't have the authority to order this, but Congress certainly does. And that's what I want to discuss with you. Our number is four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, if you're going to run, if you're a big pharmaceutical company. And you're running ads trying to encourage people to use particular drugs, see your doctor, et cetera, et cetera. 
should the ad have to include the list price of the drug? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. In an effort for transparency, should you as the consumer have to have a rough, should you have a rough idea when you go in and you say to your doctor, hey, I saw this ad for, you know, ABC drug, you know, and, and I want it. You know, should the, should the consumer at least have a rough idea that, hey, you know, that drug might cost list price two or $3,000 a month? 414-799-1620. Transparency. Should drug companies have to include the cost of drugs in their ads? Now, many other companies, like I say, don't. You know, you, you run an ad for, you know, a car dealership. That car dealership doesn't tell you how much necessarily that particular car they're trying to sell is. They just want you to get in and look at cars. 414-799-1620. Should the drug companies have to tell us how much something costs? We discuss in just a minute. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Nancy in Burlington. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Jeff. How are you today? Good. What do you think about this? Uh, well, I think the lawsuit was a huge waste of money. I, I think Trump had a, an idea, but anyone who's got a smartphone and can use Google can Google the cost of a drug. Um, yeah, but do people do that? I mean, isn't that part of the I problem? I do that. Yeah. I do that. And as an RA, I, and I worked in home care and, and hospice for a long time, I became very conscious of the cost of medications. There's lots of, lots of medications, pharmaceutical companies take them, tweak them a little bit, and jack the price up. Right, right. And, um, and you're, you're a smart consumer, Nancy, but I, I don't, most people aren't. Most people, I mean, I guess, let me ask you this. What's the downside of having a pharmaceutical company that's, you know, running an ad for its, ver- its version of Viagra, for the sake of argument? They take the ads back off television oh, again. Okay. We... I, I get so frustrated when I hear people tell me, can I try this? What do you think about that? And right. I think you know, there's other products out there if you would. And it takes up a lot of physicians' time. Mm. People coming in and asking for this new medication or that new medication. Because you saw it on TV. I heard this on the radio and I want this. Absolutely. The same with all the new smartphone apps for checking your Mm -hmm. pulse and checking your blood pressure. And you might have atrial fib. (laughs) And these people get a little bit of an irregular reading and they're running into the physician saying, look what my phone told me. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's almost too much information. No, thanks. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. But okay. But the. Okay, when it comes to TV advertising, the genie is out of that bottle. They're, they're, they're not – the government, I don't think it could, under the First Amendment, I don't think it could stop the, the drug companies from advertising. And because there's so much money involved in this, you know, they're going to continue to do that. Now, I mean, here, here's how this could play out in theory. Let's say, and I'll take the example of, of Viagra. I'm not even sure they, they manufacture – that might be generic now. But, but regardless, let's say – Let's say you've got two companies that are producing uh, essentially the same drug. It does it does you know, similar types of things, and you have one company that says the list price of this is a thousand dollars a month, and another company that says the list price of this is five hundred dollars a month. Well, maybe if you were paying for it, you would be more inclined to go and, and do the $500 one. That's the that's the way the theory would work out. So in theory, it would maybe force the other company to lower its prices. So that 
That's the idea. And I guess as I think about this, is this a perfect solution? No, it's not. I'm trying to think of what I think the downside to this would be because I I do – and look, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. But, you know, I mean, the more – we're all concerned about rising health care costs. And I think the more transparency we get, the more we understand not just – you know, not just what our deductible is or not just what we're going to pay, but what the insurance company is going to pay. The more we know this, the more educated consumers we become and, and the better chance we have of maybe reigning in health care. Is this a solution to stop rising prices? No, I mean, it, it, it's not the magic bullet, but I guess I'm not sure I see what the problem to this is. Now, like I said, the judge says that the, that the Trump administration just can't do it by executive order, but the Congress could. So to me, that's that's what the dialogue is. Sue in Cedarburg. Hi, Sue. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi. Um, I understand the the need to be transparent. I think these companies need to let people know what they're charging for the drug. However, when you go to buy the drug, wherever you're going to buy it, mm-hmm. it's going to be different in every drugstore. I just went because I have eye drops, and these eye drops that, that I, the doctor told me to get have just come out, and we checked in three different places. They went from $79 to $150. The same eye drops? The same eye drops or whatever, depending on where you went. The, the least expensive was um, Costco. Okay. So then I went to um, my secondary insurance to see if I could get these because then because it's a name brand they always want you to do um, the generic because mm-hmm. you know because this one is not on their formulary but it happened to be on their formulary because there is no generic for it yet but when there is a generic for it I won't be able to get that brand anymore I'll have to take the generic so the so the eye drops for my um, my insurance were going to cost me because it's a name brand twenty four dollars for three months supply. Oh, okay. So oh. it depends on your kind of insurance. Yep. It depends on whether they're in their formulary. Right. Um, if they have a generic that's equal to it right now, there is no generic that is equal to this drug. I that happened to me before when I took Trulicity. I took Trulicity when it first came out years. All of a sudden, there's now generic, and so they're not going to pay for Trulicity anymore. I have to do the generic. Mm-hmm. And then you have to play the game, and you get sick, and you whatever. This one makes me sick. This one does this, whatever. So finally, I'm back on Trulicity. But that's the that's the game they play. Oh, no, I, absolutely. No, I think, look, and, and so, look, I... I, I I understand, and I, I think as we look to rein in costs, I, I do think there, there's all sorts of stuff that goes on, but I, I do think transparency is this key issue. And I guess I, I go back to what I said earlier. I, I, I don't see the downside in saying, okay, this is the list price, and then you say, okay, that's the list price, but stuff may it, – it'll vary depending on your insurance and reimbursement rates and what part of the country you're in and all these different types of factors that are in there. I guess I, I don't see the downside to telling people, all right, just up front, if you've got two competing drugs for 
uh, again, we'll, we'll take Viagra as the example. You've got two competing drugs that do the same thing. One has a list price of 500, acknowledging it's going to be different. One has a list price of 1,000. I, I don't I don't see the downside, at least telling consumers what that is. I understand that most advertising doesn't. I, I get it. Most advertising doesn't have the price in the ads itself. But at the same time, you know, especially when you look at, you know, the, the public component to insurance, et cetera, et cetera, I don't see the downside to doing this. Will Congress get around to doing it? I, I don't know. In the meantime, as the last couple of calls show, it, it does it does kind of pay to call around. And if it varies from pharmacy to pharmacy, and when the doctor says, uh, okay, where do you want me to send the prescription? Do you want me to send it to this place or that place or the other place? You know, it might be worth saying, okay, well, let me call this place and that place and the other place and find out, you know, how much it's going to cost me and how much it's going to cost my insurance company. Because the truth of the matter is, if we're ever going to get a rain on any sort of rain at all and spiraling healthcare costs, and whenever I talk about insurance, if I can digress for just a moment, I, you know, I, I understand we're talking about the, the, the some political candidates want to get rid of the private health care system and no more health insurance. We're going to have the government take it over. See, I don't think that's where the vast amount m- percentage of Americans are. I think most of us who get our insurance through our employers, et cetera, I, I think most of us are basically happy with the insurance. Now, you don't like the deductibles. Maybe you don't like how much you have to pay on prescription drugs and things like that. That, to me, instead of blowing up the system – that's where you concentrate. It's, okay, how can we figure out ways to keep medical costs in line? And the more we know and the easier it is to find out how much procedures cost and how much doctor's visits are going to cost and how much prescriptions that we're taking regularly are going to cost, the more we know, I think the better educated consumers we are and maybe, just maybe, the more we can lower costs. At least it's a start. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Tony, before you leave, you going to watch the baseball all-star game tonight? Yes, I'll be working here, the man in the newsroom, but I'll oh. be definitely tuned in. Oh, okay. If, if you were not working and so, like, doing it as part of your job and stuff, would you watch, if you were on... I think you... so. I always like the All-Star game. Do you? Yeah, for baseball. Uh, baseball is the one All-Star game I will watch. I won't tune into the NBA or Pro Bowl for the NFL, but uh, for some, something about uh, baseball, maybe it's just the fact there's no other baseball to consume or major sports to watch. Well, yeah, and as a matter of fact, I, I think, isn't tomorrow, like, the deadest day of the yes. sports year? Because there's, like, nothing at all going on tomorrow. Yep. That's pretty typical. Uh, it's kind of a sports, uh, I guess, just a gap, a void. I, I just, you know, it's. I, I, I understand. I just, I have no interest in the All Star Game. It, I, I just, and I, I understand. It. I understand that people do, mm-hmm. but I just, it's like the home run derby. Absolutely no interest in the oh, home really? run derby. Oh, really? I thought None. last night was fantastic. Too. I have no, I have no opinion because okay. didn't watch it. Just I was. Right. The only thing is, I was tuning in because the thing I wanted to watch later on at night, the World Series of Poker. Mm-hmm. Um, that was on, but it wasn't on until after the home run derby, which ran long. Okay, yeah, yeah, so, they had a couple playoffs. Uh, it was it was probably one of the best derbies I've seen in in recent years. I will take your word for it because <laughs> I I had to the extent I have no interest in the All Star Game. I had absolutely no interest in the home run derby. But okay, well, yeah. all right, that's see, that's what makes the world go round. Okay, so Gru, you're are you going to be watching the game? 
uh, yeah, I'm going to be watching it. Okay, so you're 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 like a fan of the All Star Game. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I, I've become much more of a baseball fan since I've moved to Milwaukee, right. and Good so now you. I yeah, so now I'm I have an interest in watching it now. Good for you. Now, see, I'm I'm a huge baseball fan. It's just I'm not necessarily a fan of the All Star Game. So, but I'm so, but that's okay. I, although what I am a fan of Friday night. Okay, Friday night. My wife and I are going to the game, and here's 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 the deal. All right, this is just between us. Um, Dave Spano, Annex Wealth Management uh, friend, and I'm I'm a client. He's got he's got front row seats. He he's got seats that are um, kind of like right behind home plate, just on the first base side. Yeah, he's right by like the, where they warm up. Don't right you? by where they warm up. He gave me his two t- tickets, so oh. I'm going. So it's Fran and I. So you know you you got front row, Amy. Well, okay, Friday night. If you're watching TV, it's it's Jeff and front row Franny right there. You know, we're we're going to be we're kind of like on the aisle, and and you're not you're not yeah, I love <laughs> yeah, yeah front row Franny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it, I I don't I don't think she's going to dress to emulate uh, front row sure, Amy. I, sure. I don't think that's going to be the case. But yeah, we're gonna, so yeah. The the way I I kind of figured out when they show the camera shots of like the players in the on deck circle and all, I, I think we're we're there. You'll be so, right there, right? So I have to. Make sure I behave myself there, but Friday night, yeah. It's, they don't pick your nose. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll, now, now, of course, that's going to be my thought for the whole game. Okay, you might be on camera. Don't do that. No. So it's so Fran and I. It's going to be Jeff in front row. Franny, we're going to be there Friday. And see, and I I love baseball. It's just for some reason the All Star Game meh, does not do that much for me. All right, there is a trial going on in downtown Milwaukee. It's um, the the man is on trial. His name is Jordan Frick. He's on trial for the murder of Milwaukee police officer Matthew Rittner. And there's it's interesting there there's two versions. I will be curious to see how the jury plays this out. In all honesty, it's going to be a test of whether the jurors can get completely bamboozled or not. So here here's what happened. And this is I think actually the facts really aren't at issue at least as near as I can figure out. What happens is Police get a search warrant to go raid this apartment of of Jordan Frick. The search warrant is based on information indicating that there's there that Frick and his partner, you know, had bought purchased a bunch of guns over the last several months, and they were reselling these guns for a profit to people who were prohibited from buying firearms. The allegations are also that there was a small quantity of drugs and stuff in in the house. So because there's guns involved, what they do is they get a search warrant that says no-knock search warrant. And what that means is they, they don't normally you have to knock and announce. Boom, boom, boom. Police, open the door. Boom, boom, boom. Police, open the door. And you have to give people a reasonable amount of time to open the door. If you can demonstrate that there is an an exigent circumstance, an emergency type of thing, you can apply for and get a warrant that just allows you to bang down the door. What would that be? Well, maybe, maybe you're executing a raid on a drug house. And if you bang on the door, bang, 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 police, we've got a warrant, open up. Well, you give people 30 seconds, they're going to be flushing all the cocaine down the toilet. Or... If it's a situation where you're raiding a house where you believe that there's lots of guns and stuff in there, boom, 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 police, please open the door. All you give is a chance for the the bad guys to to grab their guns and be ready to to shoot you as you come through the door. So 
you can make a showing and get what they call a no-knock search warrant. You really, the federal government doesn't have those, but, but the state government does. So the police, because there's guns involved, because there's drugs involved, they get a no-knock search warrant. So what they do is they, they go up to the house, and there's Matthew Rittner, who's one of the Milwaukee police officers, and eight other members of the tactical enforcement unit. And and I've seen the tactical enforcement unit at its work. The, these men are ultimate professionals. So what they do, they've got police, you know, written in white across their chest, across their back, across their shoulders. You, 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 you can't mistake these people. I mean, you, you know that they are, are cops. Um, they have this no-knock search warrant. So what they do is they go to a rear entrance, and they use this battering ram, and they knock down the door while they're yelling, police, search warrant. They go up the rear stairs to this guy's apartment, and, you know, they, they've got another one of these battering rams. The officers are screaming, police, police, police. Um, they hit the door to the back door to his apartment several times, and they open. The door doesn't give in. It opens a hole in, in the door, and the cops are yelling, police. At which point in time, this Jordan Frick is in the kitchen. He's got a gun, and he starts shooting through the door at the people who are yelling, police. Well, what ends up happening is Officer Rittner is is shot, um, and and he's ultimately killed as a result of this. Um, Frick, for his part, says, yeah, I, I never heard them say search warrant. I heard people yell police at least twice. But I didn't know whether it was the police or not. His girlfriend, who was there at the time, says, yeah, we, we heard people yelling police, and he shot anyways. Um, and then I guess there, there's some issue as to whether or not, based on what was going on at the door, you could look through it and see whether you know, the people had the things that said police on it or not. But it, I think that's what happened. I don't think there's any disagreement about the underlying facts they're doing the search warrant. They announce themselves as police. He shoots, you know, at the the police. His defense is going to be, hey, this is self-defense. Even though they said they were police, I live in a bad neighborhood, and I didn't know that they really were police. They, they could have been, these could have been, you know, some some gangsters that, you know, knew I had guns and drugs and money in this house and that they would be trying to break in. So I was just defending myself when, when I fired the shot. So this is a matter of self-defense. Now, I guess without having heard any testimony, because they're just in the middle of their opening statements now, I think this is a tough line of defense because even – with the castle doctrine, and even with the right to defend yourself in, in your home, when you're awakened and you hear people screaming, police, 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 and you go and you grab a gun and you start shooting through the door at the people who are yelling, police, 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 it's tough for me to understand how a jury will be able to interpret that as self-defense. Now, juries do all sorts of strange things, you know, and, and I never predict the outcome of trials. I'm just saying, based on what appears to be the uncontested circumstances behind this trial, the only issue is going to be, okay, you're a small-scale drug dealer, you're a small-scale arms dealer, you're awakened, and you hear people yelling, police, search, and you know they're screaming, police, and they're coming through the door. 
do you get just the right to to shoot indiscriminately and is that in fact self-defense my answer if i'm on that jury and that's what the facts are it probably takes me well let's see you go back to the jury room it takes you probably 10 minutes to elect a four person it probably takes me about another five minutes to decide you know on on who how i'm going to vote in that particular case who knows how this is going to turn out but uh, again what you're going to see in this trial is you're going to see, I think, probably an examination of, of how the tactical enforcement unit does its job and what are they supposed to do. If this case results in an acquittal, though, my concern is is it's going to be open season on police officers because it's essentially going to be a green light that says, okay, cops are going through the door, here, fire at them, and then claim that you thought it was some rival drug dealer or guns dealer or whatever trying to break in. Don't know how this is all going to play out. Jury has to hear the evidence. But if you're going to try to sell this on a theory of self-defense, I think it's a tough sell. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. All right. We live in a very, very polarized country. Now, for example... I admit, I, I, and I, if you want to accuse me of hypocrisy, down the line, I'll, I'll open that up. Because over the last couple of days, I have made the statement, and I have not encouraged you not to purchase Nike products. I have said that I have made an individual decision that after this last stuff with Nike, the company, going in with um, Colin Kaepernick and deciding that, that, that they need to be woke – and the idea of the Betsy Ross flag, oh, we, we can't have that on the shoes because it's a sign of, I, I don't know, white imperialism or whatever. And the company making that decision, I have made the decision that I'm not going to purchase Nike as long as, as long as Colin Kaepernick is a spokesperson and this is their corporate philosophy as expressed in the corporate actions. I'm, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to purchase Nike. I'm, I'm not throwing out the stuff I have from Nike. That would be dumb. But I'm not purchasing new Nike stuff. You can decide whether you want to do that yourself or, or not. In addition, we had the story yesterday about, you know, that the Starbucks that, that's always very, very concerned about being woke. And you had the barista in Starbucks that after, you know, one crazy guy complains that he's agitated because there's six uh, Tempe police officers in Starbucks. He, he's upset with that. And instead of just simply telling the, the crazy guy who's agitated because there's cops that, I'm sorry, okay, then maybe you should just take your coffee to go, they ask the cops to leave, right? Now, to me, this has been the latest example of what's been, I, I think, several corporate type of decisions. And I understand that to an extent Starbucks kind of apologized for this, but you can trace multiple decisions, I think, that Starbucks ha- has made that from a perspective of corporate policy – I just think, well, I don't agree with, and so I, I, I don't patronize Starbucks. I don't care whether you do it or, or not, but it's because of corporate policy. My objections to Nike is because of the corporate policy. Here we can't have the, the tennis shoes. All right. Now, here's the story. The, um, the guy who is the founder of, of Home Depot, his name is Bernie Marcus, and in an interview with a newspaper down in Atlanta, he said that he intends to support President Trump's re-election campaign. 
He says that while the president sucks at communication, his impact on employment and his stances towards China and Iran have been positive. Okay, so this is what he says. I'm going to support Trump because I think he's been good for my business. As soon as he says this, there is now this major movement on on the Internet, social media. You've got the Twitter mob that is out there threatening boycotts. We need to boycott Home Depot because the individual owner is going to support President Trump. 414-799-1620. That is the Accunate Mortgage talk and text line. Now, keep in mind, unlike Nike, this isn't because Home Depot has adopted corporate policies to advance a particular political or agenda or social cause or whatever. This is merely the owner who says, hey, I'm, I'm going to support Trump. All right, should that be a basis for boycotting businesses? Is that how we should be handling things, saying, all right, the owner of this business says he supports so-and-so, I'm not going to patronize that business anymore. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Are boycotts like this appropriate? Are, do boycotts like this work, or is it just you know, a hissy fit, regardless of whether it's the left or the right. 414-799-1620. Gru is lining up the calls. We discuss in just a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. And the other dazzling detail to the story is that this Bernie Marcus, the, the founder, CEO of Home Depot, he, he, he retired a number of years ago. And, and even though I, I think, I mean, he, he's not, He's not a direct spokesperson for the company anymore, but this was, in fact, his company. Same article that he says he plans to donate money and support President Trump. He also said he plans to give 8 to 90 percent of his wealth, estimated somewhere between 4 and $5 billion. Um, he, he plans to give it to charity. But, oh, no, it's, it's not. No, we're not going to applaud him for being a wonderful philanthropist. Can you believe it? He wants to support President Trump. Let's not shop at Home Depot. Dan in New Berlin. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Dan. Uh, yes, Mike. Mike, excuse, hi. My thoughts were: uh, Do you remember during the recall lecture for Scott Walker? I believe the owner or the CEO of the Big Trips here in Wisconsin. Right. Uh, he was a big supporter of Scott Walker. Right. And the other side took it upon himself to call for a boycott of all Big Trips. That didn't work. It backfired. Right, and the, remember the, the pizza company too. I, I, was it Palermo's or another one? I, but yeah, remember Palermo's the same thing. Right, same yeah. thing. Same thing with that. Right, all these people say, "Oh, we're we're going to boycott all this stuff." And as a practical matter, it, right, it, organized things never work. No, thanks to call. But it, the the other thing, like I say, this guy's even retired from it. But but it's not like a corporate policy. This is different than than Nike which is using its corporate practices to make, you know, various statements. That this is just that the retired CEO says I I I like Donald Trump. I think he's done great things for the business world. And to that it's I'm cutting up my Home Depot card. Tom in East Troy. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Tom. Well, my family and I were Menards people and now we'll be supporting Home Depot. Uh good for this guy. I talked to you last week. I just don't get why these corporate um CEOs are voicing their opinion on politics, but I think this is going to be a win for this guy. I mean, the majority of the country uh, supports Donald Trump. He'll get some more business, and, you know, let the 
the boycotters boycott. Who cares? He's going to put them back in the limelight and get some attention, get some business, and uh, go Home Depot. Yeah, thank, thanks. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it, it ends up being a net gain because these things for – my guess is for a lot of the people that are so outraged – and again, he, he's the retired CEO – I mean, it's it's not like he's even the current CEO. It's not it's like it's not even like you have a Chick Fil A situation where you have the the founders. You know, it's a family owned business. You know, and they have their particular heaven forbid they have this religious beliefs that might conflict with what some of the the woke people around the country feel. Despite the fact that as far as corporate policies go, well, they're they they play it straight up and down the line. Jeff in Cedarburg. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, I like what you just said about the Chick-fil-A. I mean, if they didn't like Home Depot or a, a certain reason why, you know, maybe they were against abortion or for abortion, that's great. But they don't like Trump. That's that's ludicrous. They don't like people. They don't like a certain person. Right. I, I'm i a veteran, and I, I shop at Home Depot and Menards. Home Depot gives me a discount for being a veteran. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be a positive for Home Depot to move Trump into another uh, level of getting more votes. I think it's crazy. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people look at that and say it, it is in fact crazy. And so, if, if you, you know, if you have a Home Depot in your area and you like the store and you go there a lot, you mean seriously you're not going to shop there anymore because the retired CEO who's giving billions of dollars to charity when he dies says he likes Donald Trump. I mean, how how petty and weird is that? And if they were selling life-saving equipment to save their child from death, would they not go to Home Depot? Right? I, it, it's all perspective. No, it, it is. Thank, thanks. Right. No. Human being. No. Thanks to call. And again, see, I guess I do see a distinction between, and I'm, I'm trying to make this clear here. In this case, you know, it's an individual who's affiliated with the the company. You know, who is a personal political thing. I see a difference between that and a company that has, as for example, a corporate policy that you you might you know f- not agree with. I, I think there is a distinction to be made there. But in any case, okay, you you want to boycott Home Depot? Go ahead. My guess is Home Depot is going to do just fine. Thank you. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Now, I think I have a relatively decent sense of humor. And I also think I I have a real understanding of that line between something that is a prank and something that is more than that. All right? So here's the deal. And this this is the latest one of the stupid Internet things. I, I swear there's something about social media that just takes normal people and it lowers their IQ about 80 points. And, now, and I understand some of that. If you ever read the comments, like when the newspapers that still allow comments up there, my, my advice is don't, just don't read it because you'll just feel yourself getting dumber and dumber because you've got a handful of those trolls that are out there that are sitting in their mom's basement in their underwear and they're just you know writing you would hope that they're just trying to spoof people because you would hope that they really don't think like that, but but maybe they do. So now the thing on the Internet is how can you get yourself noticed? And there have been, over the last few years, there have been 
viral challenges. That that that's the thing. What was the one last year, Grew? Was it the the water bucket thing where you right? It was the water bucket thing where you you know you you dump a bucket of ice cold water yeah, on ice yourself. Bucket challenge. Ice bucket challenge, and then you challenge other people to do the same thing, and it was supposed to raise money for some cause or something. Yeah, you, right? You nominate like three people right. to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. well, didn't I didn't get around to doing that? But but all right. But at least that way, it's kind of harmless in certain respects. The latest thing, and it started, God help us, it started in in East Texas a few weeks ago. This teenage girl goes into a grocery store, and she finds a a carton of ice cream, this Bluebell ice cream, which is a brand of ice cream, and she licks the container and then puts the container back on the shelf. In the icebox. And she's videoed doing this. And so they put this up on, on the Internet. And this is now the, the, this is new, the new virtual viral Internet challenge. Go into a store, lick the ice cream container, and then put it back. All right. What's the general reaction we have to that? Yuck. All right. So here's what happens. It's this guy. His name is Lenise Lloyd Martin. Um, 36 years old, unemployed, no surprise. He's in Louisiana. He sees this. So what he does is he walks into his local grocery store. He finds a carton of ice cream. He licks it, and then he puts it back. All right? Now, he's seen doing this. Apparently what happens is that the store owner, they've got cameras all over, including they've got a camera behind like the frozen ice cream case and stuff. So the store owner, you know, is watching this and he sees this guy lick the ice cream and then put it back. All right. Well, bottom line is, you know, they they call the cops, they start investigating, um, and then, you know, then they they go out and, and they arrest him. But that's what he did. Now his defense is that, well, I, I really, yes, I licked it. I, I did all this, and I did it because of this viral challenge, but I, I subsequently bought the ice cream. I, I bought this carton of ice cream. The problem, of course, is they don't know whether he did that or, or not. He, he's got a receipt that says he bought a, a you know, thing of ice cream, but they, they don't know whether he bought, whether, you know, the one he put back, ha, 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 I've licked it, whether that was the same one he bought. They, they just don't know. So what they had to do is they had to destroy all the ice cream that was there. So anyhow, they've identified this guy. He's now been charged. He was he was arrested um, for, you know, doing, you know, what he did. And he's been in jail for a couple days because they arrested him before the 4th of July holiday, and he couldn't get to see a magistrate or something until Monday. So he spent about four days in jail. Um, he was charged with criminal mischief for tampering with a product before he had purchased it, which apparently is against the against the law. And so, like the authorities say, we don't know if he purchased it or not, but even if he did, it doesn't matter. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, I understand that there are harmless pranks or let's do something silly and let's film ourselves doing that because we want to get attention or... Hey, we're trying to raise money for a particular cause. So here, dump a bucket of cold water over yourself and then challenge other people. Okay, that that's fine. This one is people going into grocery stores and, in this case, licking ice cream cartons and then putting them back. 
414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm sorry. I don't see this as a harmless prank. And candidly, I think that anybody that does this, number one, in addition to needing to have their head examined, number two, yeah, I think you need to be charged with a crime. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go in and buy a thing of ice cream that some, you know, joker has licked. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, I, I try to be real careful, so especially as I get older. I, I don't want to be that grumpy Grandpa Simpson, hey, kids, get off my lawn. I'm really not that guy. I just don't think this is a joke. I don't see this as a prank. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Yeah, and, and if I wasn't clear about this, what, what, what they do is, okay, let's say you've got a half-gallon carton of ice cream, and let's say it's in one of those kind of round containers they, they're not sealed as a general rule. You know, once you take, you unscrew the top of the container and the ice cream is right there. So what they do is it's not just that they lick the top of the container. They unscrew, you go up to the frozen food thing, you take the ice cream out, you unscrew the container, you lick the ice cream, yuck, and then you put the, contact, the cap back on. And, you know, it, it's, the, these things as a general, they're not sealed or anything. So you, the, the next person, wouldn't know whether somebody had done this again. Michelle says, I will never again purchase ice cream after hearing this. Well, I, you know, I, I, I understand. 414-799-1620. Let's start with David in Wauwatosa. Hi, David. Hey, how are you? Good. What I do you think? Want, I just want to preface it by saying I think it's completely disgusting. And But the, the specific instance that you're speaking of where the man has a receipt and he claims that he bought it, Mm-hmm. I think that the presumption of innocence should be given to this man, and the burden of proof should be on the state to prove that, in fact, the one that he licked, he put back and bought a different one. I just think think in in our society, particularly in the last couple of years, we've been throwing the presumption of innocence Away. Well, okay. And first of all, really the presumption sad. of innocence. First of all, the presumption of innocence is in a court of law, not in a court of public opinion. He did. Well, he did that. take. He did take a video. He took a video of himself and posted yeah. it on Facebook doing this. So, yeah. I, if nothing else, whether it's a crime or not, would you agree with me? It's felony dumb to do. Yes, I yeah. completely agree. This is ridiculous. I mean, half of the kids reading Tide Pods. Yeah. A year ago now, at least at least now it's ice cream. So. <laughs> well, at least thanks to God. At least at least with the Tide Pods, they were eating the Tide Pods. In this particular case, you know, you you open it up, and and this is this is the latest trend. And then and then of course you you film yourself doing this, and then you post it up on Facebook. Now I I don't know. It's an interesting thing about proof beyond a, a reasonable doubt. The problem from the store owner's perspective is, all right. You know, you, you have somebody who's done this. And actually, I think the law in Louisiana, there's actually a law that, that prohibits tampering with food products, even if you subsequently buy them. Um, it's probably a little used thing. But I, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to have any sympathy for this moron who goes in and does this and thinks it's funny. And he, he admitted, he said, yeah, I, I, I did this. I wanted to, um, I, I just, I, I wanted to, you know, have my moments of fame. Well, okay, you got them. 414-799-1620. Uh, Ian in Kenosha. Hi, Ian. And you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. What Hi. a beautiful day to, to, 
Do we have ice cream? You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm going to have a beer in a few minutes. That's my plan. Oh. <laughs> That's funny. Well, uh, well, what I think it, it, I agree with the first caller. Um, I think that it, that that guy is not innocent. I think uh, I think I think it's uh, what 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 he got. His punishment is just. I mean, mm-hmm. you shouldn't go around looking ice cream. It's a form of stealing in the first place, and you should buy first and then try to video yourself doing that. I mean. What do you think? Well, no, I think see and see here the the, the from the put yourself in the perspective of the store owner. Let, let's not, I guess, I think let's not look at this from the perspective of the the criminal or the perpetrator. The store owner in this particular case, what they said is they couldn't tell for sure whether the ice cream thing that he bought is the one that he licked or not. I mean, all all these things look the same, so their only recourse was to destroy all the ice cream. And they couldn't take the chance that this guy, I mean, I guess the bottom line is if somebody's, if somebody is so, I'm going to use the word stupid, that might not be the right word. If somebody is so out there that they're going to decide that this is what they're going to do and they're going to film themselves doing it to get a laugh or to get their 15 minutes of fame or whatever, can you trust them when they say, oh, well, this is the one I actually purchased? Well, no, you, you can't. So obviously they have to clean out the whole ice cream thing and they have to throw all the stuff away. Bottom line, and look, do, do I care what happens to this one particular guy? No, I don't. But one of the frustrating things that I do care about is this is like the latest Internet game that people think is clever. And look, let's do really stupid stuff on the Internet, and we don't care if it's going to affect other people or not. It, the, the girl I was telling you about, the 17-year-old girl that got this started, I mean, she did it in a Walmart in, in Texas, and she, she clearly licked it, put it back, and walked away. So, I mean, th- this whole idea that now we have to keep doing dumber and dumber and dumber things in order to, you know, get people's attention, and all these people say, oh, that's really cool, that's great that you're doing that. No, no, it's, it's not cool, it's not great, it's, it's dumb. Jim in Kenosha. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi. Uh, I don't know if you remember, three or five years ago, a McDonald's uh, worker, a cook, uh, was putting stuff inside the burgers he was making. I don't know if it spit it in, or he put some foreign substance inside the cheeseburger, then put it out, and they gave it to the customer. He got caught, and I don't know how he got caught. If someone saw him. Yeah. Or a camera, but he got prosecuted for this. I'm not quite sure how old he was, but if he got rung up on a misdemeanor or, or uh, if he was under 18. But I remember they, they got in in the news, and they they took um they they took him to the full car, you know, to the oh, yeah. court. I don't know if you remember this. I, 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 I hear stories about that, but yeah, but it, it, no, thanks for calling. I'm sorry, I'm kind of a little bit against, up against the clock, but no, it's it's a big deal, and you know, you get caught tampering with food it's a it's a big deal as well as well as it should be now here see this is why i love you if you listen to the pro people think of all sorts of things here's a text jeff i've wondered for years why ice cream is the only food that i know of that's not sealed huh other things like dairy and yogurt and dips are sealed now I'm trying to think about that. I mean, okay, eggs aren't sealed, but you know, you you could tell if somebody had been, you know, looking at the carton of eggs. I'm trying to think 
maybe there's something other. Can grow off the top of your head? Can you think of anything? I know Cedar Crest has the cellophane Cedar seal. Cedar Crest has a seal, but yeah, I mean, but but most ice cream doesn't. No, most ice cream doesn't. And I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Certainly, most other dairy products. I mean, margarine is sealed. Like if you ever get like um, butter is sealed, like mozzarella cheese or anything like that's in the in the liquid, right? Um, that's always has a seal. Or if it's, you get like shaved like Parmesan, right? Usually has a seal. It's too. always sealed, and I'm sure dip is you know like you get French onion dip. That's always got the seal. Yogurt certainly has the seal, huh? And maybe maybe I'm just missing something, but kind of interesting thought it does make you wonder. Maybe maybe the ice cream companies need to rethink that if people are going around licking the stuff. As for me. I, I'm I'm not too sympathetic for the guy with the tongue. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. This is Jeff Wagner.